Out of all the painful memories in James Thomas's life, there is one that haunts him the most. When he was 15, he was entering the juvenile justice system, and before his trial had to meet with a psychologist. It was a pretty standard meeting, a two or three hour analysis where James, who goes by JMO, heeding his lawyer's advice, didn't talk much. The next time he sees the psychologist is at his trial. When this psychologist came to court, I was sitting up there trying to figure out who he was talking about. He was like, Mr. Thomas, James, he's a sociopath. I'm like, hold on, I've never been in trouble before. I'd never had a, I'd never had a fight, never been assaulted, none of these things. Mr. Thomas just don't have it in him. He always gonna be violent. I'm like, this is the first time I had a violent act in my life other than a fight in school. Everything he said, he, he painted this picture of this predator young person. I'm like, who is he talking about? I'm in the courtroom trying to figure out, you can't be talking to me because I did not even talk to you. How did you come up with all this? He was like, I just don't, I didn't just have it in me to have empathy or sympathy. He, he was saying a lot of stuff. He painted this picture of me based off my family, based off my father, based off my mother, based off my grandfather and family members. So he painted this picture that I was this monster and I wasn't that person. I didn't know who he was talking about. What was most infuriating to JMO was that the psychologist described his future as almost predestined by his upbringing. He was written off as a sociopath, incapable of human love and emotion, and that was that. That thoughtless classification, that easy dismissal of his humanity, his dignity, his potential for repentance, served as a constant source of sorrow and motivation. He, he was saying a lot of stuff, but, but what he didn't know later on in life, that was my, and that was my greatest, I say, ambition to be who I am today. Because I was like, a man sat with me for three hours and didn't, I didn't even talk to him, barely outside of my name. So that, that fueled me, that, 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 that kept a fire lit in me. The fire that lit helped JMO write a different narrative about who he was and who he was capable of becoming. It was a man far different than the one the psychologist had described, because JMO was fortunate to meet people who had a different view on redemption and the resilience of the human soul. Welcome to Detroit Stories, a podcast on a mission to boldly share the stories of the people and communities in Southeast Michigan. These are the stories that fascinate and inspire us. Find all episodes at DetroitCatholic.com or subscribe to Detroit Stories on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or Google Podcasts. This episode is sponsored by Michigan Catholic Conference. Visit micatholic.org forward slash sign up to join the Catholic Advocacy Network. You'll receive email updates and action steps to have your Catholic voice heard on bills in the Michigan House and Senate that impact human dignity and the common good. Jamo was born in Detroit to a 13-year-old mother and a 16-year-old father whom he would only see six times in his life. When he was born, his father was in juvenile prison. My grandmother raised me as her child, probably about probably about five to six years, so it was me and nine siblings, nine, eight to nine other siblings, because my grandmother had eight children before me, so 
She raised me as her child for about six years, I believe. Jamo grew up thinking his mother was actually his older sister until he was six years old. That's when they set me down. I was at a birth, at, actually at my at my birthday party, and they set me down, explaining to me what was the situation. You know that my my mother, my sister, that was actually my mother. So we had that discussion. Still was confused about it. Still took some time to figure it all out. And um, so my mother began to raise me as her child and things of that nature. We moved. Jamo and his real mother moved to Columbus, Georgia, where his mom had a job at the Fort Benning Army Base. His mother got married, had another son, and they lived what he called a middle-class suburb life, where unlike when he lived with his grandmother, he wanted for nothing. So I didn't have those worries or fears about nothing. It wasn't until my mother my mother and her husband began to make bad decisions, and the moment she stopped making good decisions as a mother, it began to have effect on me as a child. These bad decisions involved getting caught up in the family business, the drug trade. That's when my mother was indicted um, with a group of, with a group of our family members in, in Columbus, Georgia, and Mississippi, and um, California. Indictment came down, and my mother was in the indictment, accused of um, laundering money for um, family members in the criminal enterprise. Unfortunately, Jamo's mother was sent to prison. Prison seemed to be another part of the family business. My father probably been on a 45-year life-bid installment plan because he's been in and out, 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 in and out. In an unfortunate situation, not only was my father in the county jail, my grandfather was in the county jail, I had an uncle in the county jail, I had a slew of friends that was in the county jail because our family from Detroit was indicted in 87, so... It's people, you know, it's, I'm like, it, it was just a sad day, a sad testimony. You know, the tragedy of seeing all these young bodies, black bodies locked up from the same neighborhood. So, Jamo was 14 when his mother was incarcerated. He and his brother moved back to Detroit. I made sure my brother was placed with family members to take care of him. And I just began to take care of myself. After couch surfing for two or three months, Jamo and a friend got their own place and then set about providing for themselves the best way they knew how. Came up here and linked up with family members and friends from my old community and neighborhood. And, and you know, we we were selling drugs. We were selling drugs to survive and take care of ourselves. We met 14, 15 years old. And so that, that was my life until I was incarcerated. Within a year of venturing out on his own, Jamo was charged with a drug-related incident and given life in prison. To be honest with you, I did not even understand it when the judge gave me natural life at 15 years old, to be honest with you. You know, you could at 15, you can't really comprehend what is natural life. So I always thought I was going to get out. I didn't know how I was going to get out. But I felt as I was going to find a way. You have those moments where you question, are you going to get out? Because you see men and women that's incarcerated to have natural life. Nine times out of ten, when they leave prison, they leave in a casket, to be honest with you. So that that's always in the back of your mind, you know, you know, I'm so and so that that gave me the energy to fight for my freedom, you know, to be what I consider the freedom fighter, you know. Because I did, I, I take full responsibility for my actions that led me to prison. But I, I always knew within me 
I had the potential to be great. You know, I, I knew I wasn't a violent person. It was circumstances that led me to those acts. You know, I knew I knew I had empathy for people and compassionate for people. And I, I just believe I just believe that God will open the door for me and give me opportunity and second chance to redeem myself and show humanity that I am the man that I am today. Jamo wouldn't leave in a casket. He would get the chance to make good on his prayers to God. He just needed to meet Deacon Mike first. Well, I began um, going into prisons way back when I was a uh, uh, deacon candidate. This is Deacon Mike Chesley, executive director and the founder of the Wayne County Jail Outreach Ministry, with a mission to serve formerly incarcerated persons, offenders, and their families by offering education, advocacy, spiritual needs, emotional well-being, and human dignity. Deacon Mike first got involved in prison ministry as part of his diaconate formation. They challenged the the, uh, aspirants and the candidates to get into a summer ministry that kind of you're not comfortable with, you know, to kind of explore different ministries. So um, I'm pretty tough skin. I was a son of a Detroit cop and <laughs> I'm a military vet. And, and so there's not a whole lot that, you know, bothers me. But um, I didn't like the idea of picturing a jail being closed confinement. So I picked that and just, you know, really never left it. When Deacon Mike says he never left it, he really means it. Prison chaplaincy became part of his all-consuming obsession for the next 16 years. At the time, Wayne County Jail had no Catholic chaplains, and he worked his way into volunteering there, developing its Catholic program, and eventually heading up Wayne County's entire chaplaincy outreach. During the days, he was busy working his secular job as a director of produce for Cisco Corporation, and in the evenings, he visited state prisons four times a week and jails two times a week. He also made daily drives throughout Detroit's areas where he knew the homeless lived with bagged meals and sanitary goods. Just a heads up, he has a very chatty dog who you may hear throughout this interview. Deacon Mike's experience of prison was a stark contrast to the one he first expected, the one he feared. The first prison I ever went into was a female prison. And um, it's not as confined as you would experience in a jail. So um, but you have the clearances, you have the gates that, you know, the doors that shut behind you. It's very controlled environment. Um, but then you usually go into a community space where the women are brought out to you. They would meet for a Bible study a couple nights a week. They did RCIA. He taught the women how to pray the Liturgy of the Hours, and they started making Vespers and Evening Prayer part of their regular routine, whether Deacon Mike was there or not. On Sundays, they had a Eucharistic Liturgy or Mass if they were able to get a priest, a communion service if not. For them, it was really, for them, it was going, you know, to church. It was, they would, um, they always set up a nice table with a tablecloth for an altar cloth. We had a nice crucifix. Um, they'd always make sure that, that we'd have holy water. I'd bless the water so they would come in and, and have holy water. Oh, we had a, a an organ player that, um, you know, she kind of played one key at a time, but but it was it was 
we had our choir and then um uh and it was it really became a really a community deacon mike's experience in the men's prison was similar his constant refrain became an attempt to destigmatize the incarcerated community for anyone who asked i guess the first expression that uh, impression that everybody gets once they come out is wow they're there's not what I expected. Uh, so you, you learn, you listen to their stories, um, and um, you really find out that um, they're, they're really, you know, uh, just, you know, in many ways, their spirituality developed so much. And uh, a lot of them, you know, there are a lot, a lot of pain, but they've, they've had, they've made some bad choices um, in some cases um, for a number of different reasons. But uh, you walk out of there thinking, holy smokes, it's, they can't believe, you know, why is that young lady in there? It doesn't make any sense. You know, it's just it's hard, to, hard to imagine because they, they are so, um, uh, uh, you know, just, just they, they're, they're, uh, they're very loving. They take care of each other. They watch over each other. It's really uh, kind of a beautiful thing to, to see it when you, when you experience it. Deacon Mike's love for those behind bars soon transitioned to an almost paternal fear for what would happen to these men and women after they were released. He saw the radical and transformative power of a spiritual and religious regeneration behind bars, and he knew the damning statistics on recidivism rates. So his ever-expanding list of ways he volunteered to those behind bars grew to include a host of needs for those who are released from prison. And so a lot of people, um, you know, they've never met someone that's been in prison or anything like that. So it's kind of the sympathy is very much on the low end because they feel that, well, you know, they, they, did, they did what they did, so they deserve what they got. Uh, the problem is with that is, you know, uh, yes, they, they, they did something wrong. Um, and, you know, they knew they do need to serve their civil time and, uh, and the penalties that come along with it. But the problem that comes along with it is the after effects. When an individual comes out of prison or jail, they, their sentence isn't over. It continues and follows with them. Once you get a felony, it's awfully hard to get a job and it kind of fouls with you uh, all your life. And there's a lot of obstacles. Um, it's hard to work with through them, but uh, if you can break those obstacles, if you can get them to think straight and take responsibility for themselves, then, you can, then they can be a success. Um, but it's really hard to do a lot. You know, many of them are so trapped in it that um, uh, they just don't want to do it. Deacon Mike knew of many job training programs, rehab assistance programs, and other charities in other counties that would help those released. But the Wayne County Jail where he worked had very little. So in 2020, Deacon Mike started working with a few sheriffs and the chief of the jail to develop the Wayne County Outreach Ministry, an interfaith effort where the jails and county probation officers would send men and women coming out of jail to help them with spiritual guidance, employment placement, clothing, food, and most importantly, mentoring and life skills for successful reentry into society. We're uh, growing into a really a, a really great resource for uh, these men and women to be able to succeed. Um, and others, um, with the ones that are ready, uh, can really make a change in their lives. And we give them all the tools that we that are available that we we can help them with. We can get them. I can get them good jobs. I can get them housing. I can get them. 
you know, <laughs> um, all the things that they need to succeed. But one thing you can't do is you can't make them want to do it. You gotta, you gotta get them. You gotta have their hearts changed, and that's where our program is. Uh, hopefully, help some of them because when they come out. Uh, we move. We try to remove those obstacles. The mentoring and changing of hearts is where Jamo comes back into the story. While Jamo had been sentenced to life in prison, after 31 years, he was released after a most unlikely thing happened. The Michigan Supreme Court ruled that it was cruel and unusual punishment to sentence a minor to life in prison, forcing courts to reevaluate previous sentences. While spending those decades behind bars. Jamo had been able to do what is near statistically impossible, develop for the better. Because prison, you know, you're in an abnormal environment where everything around you is abnormal. There's nothing normal in there. And I think the only thing give most of us substance and normalcy is our spirituality. Your spirituality is within this person. It's that intimate part of who you are. So the spirituality was very important. You know, praying, giving praise to the Most High, and being thankful and meditating. And all those things, you know, played a part, you know, in somewhat bringing, bringing peace in my life. Jamo's prayer led him to write letters of forgiveness to his mother and father and become a spiritual leader in the chaplaincy program in prison. He continued to work on his education, eventually earning his GED and receiving college credits. And he started developing relationships with some of the first people in his life who put his own needs before their own through a similar mentorship program, Chance for Life, that Deacon Mike works with and used as inspiration for his own ministry. I met some genuine men who I consider brothers and great friends that cared enough about me to lead me in the right direction. Like, brother, this is the things you need to do. Don't get caught up in this prison politics things. Get your education. Fight for your freedom. Those are the most important things. Being on the yard every day, talking about what you were doing on the streets in 1988, that stuff that's not going to mean nothing. None of that's going to get you free. None of that's going to get that natural life off you. So I had people that cared enough about me that I built relationships with. And by the grace of God, a lot of people seen something in me and put me in a position where I was able to build great relationships. And through building those relationships, people began to work hard and advocate on my behalf and other juvenile lifers we have, which put us in a position to gain our freedom. This is why four years ago when Jamo was released with no previous job experience except a paper route from middle school, he had a job. Because Deacon Mike and the men who mentored him behind bars saw the drive in Jamo, the promise, and the heart for doing the same work they did. So an incredibly busy Deacon Mike got a right-hand man. And Jamo got a second chance. Me and Deacon Mike have been working hand-in-hand, -hand, uh, working with men and women that's in the county jail, as well as men and women that's coming from prison. Uh, we even take people that's just going through hardship and try to get them guidance and advice to get them back on track and put them in a position where they can contribute things to our community. Um, I'm responsible for training the men and women that comes from the county jail and the prison system. And the training that I do is, is, is job readiness training. We, and, but our job readiness training is different. I can teach you about a job all day. But first of all, I have to get you to think different because we just don't bring them in and say, okay, we're going to deal with job training. We're going to do with resumes. No, we're going to deal with your life. 
how you think, you know, where you want to be at, set goals, be ambition, what you love to do. You're going to have and teach them. You have to make the investment in what you love to do because it's, it's all right to work for somebody, but it's great to have your own and be building something for your own legacy. You know, where you want to see yourself at two, three years now? How do you want to see your children and your grandchildren? How do you want them to see you? The job training is just a fraction of all the work JMO does for Wayne County Outreach. His bread and butter, where his passion really shines, is in the mentoring. Once they complete the training, we provide mentor, one-on-one mentor, group mentor, because you can give a person training and we train them for 30 hours a week. Through that 30 hours, yes, we build a relationship, but most of those men and women need support after that. Yes, yes, Deacon Mike is able to get them jobs, but even after the job, they still need mentorship because 30 hours is not going to get it for somebody who's been living a particular lifestyle for 10 years. So the, our mentorship and our follow-up is just as equally as important than the training. Because through the mentorship, our goal is not only to get them jobs, but to make sure they maintain that job and making good decisions while they work and managing their money, building their credit. Those are the things that we're whispering in their ear as we mentor them and being a support network for them. So the mentoring piece is the most critical piece because our mentoring, we believe, is long-lasting beyond the 30 hours, beyond the job. We're trying to build a relationship that you have people that you know you can trust that's going to hold you accountable. This is Deacon Mike. We get them employment, but it isn't enough. You can't just let them go at that point. You need to mentor them all the way through to make sure that they don't trip up. It's a, it's a long-term process. Um, they may have substance abuse. They may have um, all these different issues that, you know, they're not used, especially if they've been in prison for a while. They don't know how to handle money. They don't know how to handle relationships. And they don't have anyone to, you know, to help them think through these issues. Uh, so that's where mentoring is really, really important. This gets at the heart of the Wayne County Jail Ministries mission, the mentorship piece. It's a brotherhood, a sisterhood. For many men and women who are released without family or community, it offers them a community that invests in their success. For Deacon Mike and JMO, it's a mentorship they take to a great degree of devotion, handing out their cell phone numbers to released mentees and meeting regularly with those who unfortunately haven't made it off the streets. JMO hands out meals to about a thousand needy families a week and holds regular group meetings for formerly incarcerated to offer some service projects for others, most recently making blankets for a children's hospital. We're very fortunate that Catholic Charity put us in, put us in a position where we able to have the resources because that's the number one thing, being able to have the resources to help the people that need to be helping. By the grace of God, um, Wayne County Jail Prison Ministry have the resources and support of Chance for Life and Catholic Charity and things that and many other people and just just put us in a great position um, to be able to serve the community, help men and women make a transition because oftentimes many of the men and women don't really have family. They don't really have people in their lives that tell them the truth. You know, so 
that's what me and Deacon Mike do. This hodgepodge family of Deacon Mikes can be seen attending Tigers games, visiting Substance Anonymous programs, fishing on the Detroit River, or whatever helps a mentee build an authentic community. What they work to do is give men and women something they likely have never had. There's more failures than success, I'm afraid. Um, you know, they, um, you just can't save everyone. Uh, some, some of them just, you know, some of these guys just aren't ready to be saved. So uh, you got to let them make their own decisions and um, they got to, you know, experience their own consequences and they have to make their own decisions when they're ready then we're ready to help him. JMO is one of the few successes that got to rewrite his story, give it a different ending than the one the psychologist and likely the judge, prison guards and lawyers, and for him as well. Because somewhere deep inside, a flame burned in him that whispered to him that he was imbued with dignity. God knew the potential for his life. A life which this week involved sewing quilts for hospitalized children with formerly incarcerated men, dropping off donated furniture at a recently released woman's new apartment, and picking up a recovering alcoholic who needed a distraction. He's really an outstanding uh, citizen. He, he uh, um, you can see, just completely turned his life around and, um, and really has really been, uh, is really has made his life a success. He's really a, a, a great man to, to uh, just, just see something like that happen. So he's right. He's kind of like exhibit A of what, what, they can do when someone applies themselves and wants to change. But what's probably more important is how JMO sees himself. Okay, my last question. You talked about how that psychologist described you. How would you describe you today? I just say I'm a servant of humanity. You know, I try to live my life with integrity. I try to be an agent of change. Um, I just try to I just try to do my part in helping humanity helping my fellow man and woman be better human beings. I think that speaks for who I am as a person. Detroit Stories is a production of Detroit Catholic and the Communications Department of the Archdiocese of Detroit. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode has been sponsored by Michigan Catholic Conference. Visit micatholic.org forward slash sign up to join the Catholic Advocacy Network. You'll receive email updates and action steps to have your Catholic voice heard on bills in the Michigan House and Senate that impact human dignity and the common good.